If you would, open to the chapter 20 of Revelation. Chapter 20 of Revelation. It's at the, almost at the very end of your Bible. If you would, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 20, as some of you may be aware, contains some of the most hotly contested verses in Scripture. Verses in Revelation specifically. These uh, verses are often interpreted as what people would call the millennium. And even as I say that, there's probably this internal squirming going on with many of you. You're like, oh no, where are we going? Maybe there's uh, some indifference of like, okay, no, 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 no. I've heard those people talk about that thing before and they get a little crazy, get a little excited and I don't know how I feel about this. So maybe it's your jam, you're excited to hear about this, or maybe you're indifferent, or you're a little nervous. Here we go. Oh no, what is he going to say? There has been a ton of ink spilled on the dispute concerning the interpretation of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. But I want us to go into chapter 20, asking, why was it written? Why was this text written? What is the main point? When we come to scripture, it's not about our framework, but rather God's framework as revealed in his word. So we must come to God's word with humility. And friends, in general, if our position on eschatology is not held with humility and grace, we need to examine our hearts. That's just a pastoral exhortation. How do you handle this topic? And today is going to be a little bit different. I will cover verses 1 through 10, which contain the thousand-year reign, as we'll see, but with specific intent to show that it is what we have seen before in Revelation. We call recapitulation. We've used that word a lot. But asking the question, why is it shown again from a different angle? And the answer, I think, will serve us today, will feed our souls. The intent, in part, is that I set a framework today, and then Josh West will come back next week um, and dig into the weeds. He'll go a little bit more into the details. And Josh is very gifted in this. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, he, he and Mike, I believe as well, are going to put out a podcast in the following week, so be on the lookout for that. Y'all are doing that? Okay, great. Just want to make sure. Josh was like, I think we're right. Cool. They're doing it. So the podcast will be out, and that will serve our church as well. And then after verses 11 through 15, we'll dive a little bit deeper into the chapter. And friends, we need to see the main point of the section of chapter 20. And that is this, God will bring about final justice concerning the church's enemies and reward her faithfulness. So God will bring about final justice concerning the church's enemies and his enemies and reward and vindicate his church and he will reward her for her faithfulness. In chapter 19, we were introduced to the bride, that is the church. There's a party going on in heaven as Babylon is destroyed, the one who had seduced the world. And looking forward to the coming of the groom, they party. In the third major appearance of Jesus, he comes forth as a warrior king, that is a bridegroom, and he decimates his enemies with his church by his side. And we read 
that the beast was captured and with it the false prophet and these two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, verse 20. However, the reader is supposed to hear that and think, whoa, 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 this can't be it. There's still more enemies. What about Satan? Namely. And so we turn to chapter 20. Just as there are levels of bosses in Nintendo game or whatever the cool kids play these days, one by one, John is showing his vision. We are seeing the vision that John has given by God of these bosses getting taken out. Jesus is committed to taking out his enemies and those who are after his church. And so in chapter 20, we are introduced to this slippery enemy and his journey to destruction. We are introduced to Satan. Point number one, Satan destroyed and saints secure. Read with me verses one through three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. First, it says that John saw. John says this three other times in this chapter. Remember, much of Revelation is not chronological in actuality, but rather he is seeing many things back to back, seeing replays of the same events from different angles. It speaks of the progression of the vision, not necessarily the chronological progression of events. And what does John see? John sees Satan bound by an angel. In verse 2, John uses many names, dragons, ancient serpent, devil, Satan. He doesn't want us to be unclear who this is. This is the one who has been the enemy from the beginning. He is not eternal, but he is ancient. This is the enemy who entered into the garden at the beginning with one mission, to kill, steal, and destroy. In verse 2, he is bound at God's command by an angel. The leash is tightened. In chapter 12, we saw something very similar, something that John is supposed to, John wants us to remember to bring back into this text. Using the same description of Satan, dragon, ancient serpent, devil, Satan. John says that Satan was thrown out of heaven. John wants us to remember that. In that context, John is emphasizing Satan's inability to accuse the saints. He is thrown down from the courtroom of heaven. He has no place for accusing the saints because they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ by his righteousness. Here it emphasizes, as we saw in verse three, that he is hindered from bringing about the final deception to bring the world against the church to try to annihilate her in the last day, right before Christ's return. And in the same way in chapter 12, we have numbers that parallel as well. Here we see a thousand years. In chapter 12, we saw 1,260 days. And this period in that chapter is referring to when the woman is nourished by God and protected from Satan. Here we see how, again, 
God's people are protected by the binding of Satan. Jesus attributes the binding of Satan to his work in his first coming when he says in Matthew 12, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The original readers, the early church needed this. They needed to be reminded that Satan is on a leash at God's command. And friends, we need this as well. He's not untethered. God is sovereignly ruling and reigning even over Satan. And there's a contrast as well here with Satan, in verses 1 through 3, who's judged, who's bound, and the saints who come alive and reign with Christ, one subjugated and another exalted. Read verses 4 through 6 with me. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the worship of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Friends, we're going to stay at a very high level. I'm not going to answer all of your questions, but we need to see this. God, in his kindness, is giving the church a picture of the reward of being a conqueror before his return. And we'll see this early on in Revelation, in the letters to the churches of the beginning of Revelation. He promises that those who conquer or are faithful till they die will receive the crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death, church at Smyrna. So this is what he's promising them if they are faithful till they die. They will have authority over the nations, church of Thyatira, and they will sit with me on my throne, Jesus says, the church at Laodicea. And verse six makes it clear that they are blessed or happy people. And in chapter one, we saw that John calls all believers who are dead and alive, a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And you may say, Samuel, what about the thousand year thing going on? Well, I've already commented on that as we saw it earlier, but notice this in the, le- in the letter to Smyrna. Jesus says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, as Paul puts it, for this light momentary affliction, these 10 days of suffering are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Every Christian who remains faithful till they die or conquer will come alive in God's presence and will rule with Jesus even while we wait for his return. There are metaphorically 10 days of suffering on this earth and a thousand years of glory for the Christian whose happy soul is in heaven. To die, as Paul says, is gain. And why this vision here? You know, it's, it's one thing to be told 
something's true. It's another to be given a picture of the reality, right? A good travel agent doesn't just tell their clients about how awesome Hawaii is. They do that, but what do they do? They send them pictures. They say, hey, taste and see what's here for you if you choose to do this. Taste and see what will happen if you go on this trip. They're showing you it's worth it. Friends, I think it's safe to assume that God in his kindness knew that the weary, persecuted early church needed the picture of the reward in heaven. And friends, so do we. This is not a text to just be argued about. This is a text to be treasured. This is our reward in heaven. And another reason the church needs to see this vision is because it's going to get worse on earth before Christ's return. Read verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded by the camp. Sorry. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In verses 7 through 10, we see that Satan's leash is loosened to his own demise and the destruction of those who follow him. In this, we see the echoes of Genesis 3, don't we? Satan is doing what he has always done. He's doing what he did in the beginning. He deceives and man follows him to his own doom. The magnitude of the people seen, seen through the descriptions of the four corners of the earth as coming against God's people and that they are like sands of the sea. The reference to them as Gog and Magog is an allusion to Ezekiel 38 and 39. There we see that Gog is the ruler of Magog. We don't know a whole lot about them, but they were enemies of God's people. And listen to some of the things declared against them. In chapter 39, verse four, I will give you birds of prey. I will give you, you two birds of prey of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. We've seen that before, didn't we? Chapter 19, verse six, I will send fire on Magog and on all those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So God's enemies, the enemies of the church, will be destroyed. But there's another character in this scene, the redeemed mankind. These are the ones surrounded by all sides in verse 9. They're the camp of the saints. They're under attack. But at the moment, all seems lost. All hope seems to have faded. The earthly enemies of God's people are wiped off the face of the earth by fire. We've seen this battle play out twice already in Revelation, chapter 16 and chapter 19, which we just came from. But here, so why, why was this written? Why do we see this again? 
Here the emphasis is on Satan's involvement in that war along with his destruction. We see this in the way that he deceives the people. It began with the idea that he's gonna deceive the people. Here we see he deceives the people. And then at the very end, we read this. Look at verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan did not get away while his proxies were destroyed. Iran uses Hamas and Hezbollah and other terrorist organizations to do their bidding to murder, to kill. And while Iran gets away with it, Satan does not get away with it. He cannot politically squeeze out of what he has done. Just like his counterparts, as we saw in chapter 19, verse 20, are thrown into hell where they are judged. Satan is cast forever where he belongs. Another boss has been conquered. Amen. As the great hymn declares, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. God will bring about final judgment. He cannot squeeze out of it. So friends, next time you're enduring spiritual warfare, it's acute, just throw this out there. Yo, Satan, one day you're going to hell. It's coming for you. Friends, the early church needed this for a reason. We do too. We need to see that one day Satan will be judged the terror, the, the, the lion who goes about roaring, seeking whom he may devour. We've seen his work in our own lives. We've seen his temptations. He's not gonna escape. He's not. God will judge him for all eternity for what he has done. And friends, we need to look into the mirror as well. For the vision turns to mankind's final judgment. Point number two, the eternal judgment, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In verses 11 through 15, we enter the final courtroom. And first, in walks the judge. We've seen the throne room multiple times in Revelation with the father sitting on it. Here it is described as a great white throne, implying the majesty of holiness of the one who sits upon it. He's trice holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the standard of judgment is not a list of codes devised by men, but is the perfect holiness of God. 
In light of his awesome holiness, it is said that the earth and sky fled. No place was found for them. Symbolizing the fiery undoing of the bondage of creation. The old has passed away. And in chapters 21 and beyond, we'll see the new will come. The new will come. Next, in comes the defendants. Friends, notice no one, not one person is excluded from standing before this judge on this throne. It emphasizes this by saying the great and small are there. And death, Hades, and the sea give up their dead. The dead, death cannot hide you from this courtroom. No amount of political power on this earth or wealth or popularity, the great, the seeming great, will keep you out of this throne room. Nor will seeming obscurity, not living low and isolated in poverty, no one is excluded. You and I will be in this courtroom. And last, the books are opened. We are judged by two groups of books, most likely metaphorically speaking to the omniscient mind of God. One group of books contains all the deeds done, 11 and 12, and another book, singular, has the names of those who are chosen, called, and sanctified. This is the one called the book of life, 12 and 15. Or sorry, yeah, 12 and 15. And then in chapter 21, we'll see that this is called the Lamb's book of life. These two sets of books come from Daniel, one representing judgment, the other salvation. However, John notes that all people, great and small, everyone, are judged by the books containing deeds, what we have done. And it reiterates that we're judged according to our deeds twice in verse 12 and verse 13. Friends, fellow Christians, you and I will one day be judged by our deeds. These books contain everything we have ever said, done, thought, believed, felt, every word spoken, every wayward look, every intention of the heart. And then we must seek to understand how does this relate to grace? How does it relate to being in the Lamb's book of life? What is the relationship to grace through faith and our actions at the final judgment? Theologian, theologian John Piper helps us when he writes, we must learn to make the biblical distinction between earning eternal life on the basis of works, which the Bible does not teach, and receiving eternal life according to works, which the Bible does teach. Believers in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of God and will be accepted into eternal life on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. The place of our works at the judgment is to serve as corroborating evidence that we did indeed put our trust in Christ. Therefore, when we are acquitted and welcomed into the kingdom, it will not be earned by works, but it will be according to works. There will be an accord or an agreement between our salvation and our works. The shed blood of Christ and his righteousness imparted to us 
through faith, is the only reason we will stand before the throne and enter into eternal life. But faith must work itself out in action. We're not justified by our works, but our works will agree with our justification. I love soccer. Um, I'm told I'm too white to be good, thanks to Daniel Valle, wherever he is. However, I would like to think I'm good at soccer. But if I were to claim that um, I played professionally, and I was actually like chosen in MLS draft, I'm pretty high up, you know, just kind of the best there is, things like that. And then showed up to the men's, U.S. men's national team soccer tryouts. It would be pretty quick that they'd figure out my profession does not agree with my deeds, right? There would be no hiding at the tryouts. To use another analogy Jesus uses, if the fruit tree is good, it will bear good fruit. If a tree is bad, it will bear bad fruit. Not necessarily perfectly bear good fruit, but it will bear it. It will show forth that we have been born again, that we have been born of God. So friends, does your life agree with your profession? Does it accord? No one's hiding on the day of judgment, so don't hide now. Everything done in secret will be made open. Do you live a life of faith? What will the book say about you? What will the book say about you? Does it accord? Also, astonishingly, the Bible makes it clear that all the works a Christian does by the Spirit and in faith will be rewarded by God in eternity. We saw this alluded to in chapter 11. When the vision flashes forward to after Christ has returned and the saints cry out, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of earth. Now the exact nature of our reward seems to be a little bit fuzzy in scripture, a little bit hard to parse out, but the American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, has some of the most intriguing and thoughtful comments on eternal rewards. And as a side note, I encourage you to look up some of his sermons on this topic. And in an excerpt from one of his sermons, he states, and this is a long quote, but it's well worth our time. Christ will reward all according to their works. He that gained 10 pounds was made ruler over 10 cities, and he that gained five pounds over five cities. Luke 19, 17, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. And the apostle Paul tells us that as one star differs from another star in glory, so it shall be in the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 41. Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of cold water unto a disciple in the name of a disciple shall in no wise lose his reward. But this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he did but few. And then he goes on. It will be no damp to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. And I would say, as he would say, in God. 
Every vessel that is cast into the ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. Now, Edwards may have used a little bit of speculation, a little bit of teasing out principles, but the reality is scripture is very clear. There are eternal rewards that are dependent on the way that we live by faith through grace today. Friends, don't miss this. What you do today matters for eternity, has eternal implications. If I were to ask you how much this impacts your life, if I were to ask myself, which I have been as I've been preparing for the sermon, I'm like, Lord, how much does this actually impact my life? Lord, grow me. My heart needs chapter 20 of Revelation. Your heart needs chapter 20 of Revelation. God gave us this so we might be better prepared for that day. It is his grace that we might live for that day now. If we were not made aware of this, we would not know to live for it, but we are. So it is the grace of God. And ponder with me, how would living that way affect now? How would living for eternity in the final judgment affect now? How would it affect your work, your home life, your hobbies? What would change? I'm not going to answer that for you, but I encourage you to spend some time this week with a spouse or friend or your community group. Meditate on it. If you truly grasp the eternal rewards to be had, the future happiness that awaits in beholding God, being a cup that is full, maybe even a greater cup, what affections would shift? Would you love your hobbies to the same degree that you love them now? Would your commitments at work shift from how can I get to how can I give? When you walk into a room, does eternity affect your priorities? Is your priority loving people or making sure that you're heard and understood? The Lord even, Lord convicted me recently of just that impulse to talk about myself when I sit down with people. It's like, Lord, forgive me. It's sinful, but it's also foolish. If there's eternal rewards to be had for loving people well. Friends, let's spend our lives for eternity. Let's sell houses and move to unreached people groups. Let's be bold for the gospel at work. Let's forget ourselves and lay down our lives for others. Unless we think that it's only big things for God that have eternal significance. Jesus tells us, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Friends, every time you serve in Hope Kids, you will be rewarded. It will be added to the books. Caring for your aging parents, added to the books. Serving others in ways that no one will ever know, that I don't know, pastors don't know, the rest of them, no one knows, added to the books. And church, your pastors are so grateful for the way they exemplify this. Um, it doesn't take us long when we're in elders meetings to just talk about the ways that people are serving, people are loving, people are laying down their lives. So my encouragement would be all the more 
all the more, as John Piper says, let us seek to multiply those rewards as much as possible with lives of love and generosity and let that very lifestyle confirm that we are truly born again with God's very generous nature within us. Both of those pursuits are built on the by faith alone confidence that we are children of God, that we are in the Lamb's book of life. And friends, if you come here today and have not placed your hope solely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most loving thing that I can do and anyone in this church can do is urge you to repent. Flee from the wrath to come. You will give an account for your life. It won't be men judging you. It will be the very holy God that we see on this throne. And if your actions do not accord with true faith, and if you are not in the Lamb's book of life, if you have not turned to Christ, you will be thrown into the lake of fire where you will both body and soul endure the wrath of God for all eternity. We throw hell around flippantly. We use it as a curse word. But if we actually believed what the Bible says about hell, I don't think we would speak of it lightly. You cannot scam your way out of this judgment. You can't try to balance the scales or clean yourself up or go to church or help people to get into heaven. God says all those things are filthy rags before him. In one of the most terrifying scriptures, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Who's prophesied? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I plead with you, to flee from the wrath to come. Don't prop up your life with even miraculous things that seem like godliness. Turn to Christ. Christopher, you can come up. But I'll end with one of the sweetest statements in Scripture. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There will never again be a threat of death. What entered in Genesis 3 is now gone forever. Death is no more. All that is bad is undone. All that is evil has been judged. This is the moment of relief. As Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. All our enemies are gone. The wicked witch is dead. Sauron is defeated. Voldemort has been vanquished. The empire has crumbled and the dead have been judged. And the saints have been rewarded as we will unfold throughout the rest of Revelation. The glories of what are to come. And so let us worship the Lord for his kindness 
to us as we have seen in chapter 20. So let's stand and sing together.